0: Shalom from Israel, this is Dr. Ron Elinav, and today we'll be mapping personalized glycemic response on the 15 minute matrix.
1: Welcome to the 15 Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, Functional Medicine Nutritionist and your host. The 15 Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. That's the Functional Matrix. The Functional Nutrition Matrix reminds us of three very important factors in clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, And all the things we do, all the little steps, they matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Iran Elianov. Professor Elianov, MD, PhD, is a professor at the Department of Immunology, Weizmann Institute of Science, and since 2019 is the director of the Cancer Microbiome Division at the Deutsches Krebsforschungszentrum. please forgive my pronunciation, otherwise known as the DKFZ in Heidelberg, Germany. His labs at the Wiseman Institute and the DKFZ focus on deciphering the molecular basis of host microbiome interactions and their effects on health and disease with a goal of personalizing medicine and nutrition. Dr. Elianov has published more than 150 publications in leading peer-reviewed journals, including major recent discoveries related to the effects of host genetics, innate immune function, and environmental factors such as dietary composition and timing on the intestinal microbiome and its propensity to drive multifactorial disease. Dr. Elinav, welcome to the 15 Minute Matrix and thank you for joining me.
0: Um, Thank you and it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Your work on metabolism is fascinating and exciting. I've been following it for a long time. Can you start us out by giving us a quick understanding of the glycemic index, the glycemic load, and the paradigm that your work began to question?
0: Absolutely. So, as a physician by training and, and in practice, a few years ago, as part of my work on, on the microbiome and my attempt to understand how the microbiome may impact metabolic health and metabolic disease. We asked ourselves whether we could link nutrition, the microbiome, and the outcome in terms of risk of developing diabetes, obesity, and the associated metabolic complications. And uh, so we, we started reading very old literature from the 1970s that forms the basis for everything that you and I do in our daily lives when we try to come up with a quote-unquote healthy diet that would prevent uh, these metabolic complications. Mm -hmm. And what enlightened me was that everything we do is based on one of several grading systems or scoring systems, which provide scores to different foods or food components. And based on these scores, we try to mix and match foods into diets that are hopefully healthy for us. For example, calories are one such scoring system. And the glycemic index is a a very commonly used index that is based on these small-scale studies in the 1970s in which um, usually groups of 10 healthy individuals were given an identical food and their blood sugar levels were measured for two hours after they ate this identical food. And the average response of these 10 individuals was given in a number, which is the glycemic index of that particular food. So if, if you open up a smartphone, you would find endless glycemic index values for every food or food component on earth. And take my word for it, almost any diet that you've ever tried, whether you went to a physician, a a dietitian, or you bought a a book in the airport, uh, is based in one way or another on this glycemic index score. But then we, we said, okay, much of it doesn't make perfect sense to us because despite logic behind this uh, scoring system, we've been miserably failing in using it in different dietary interventions in in controlling this huge epidemic of obesity, uh, diabetes, and their complications. So we repeated uh, these small-scale experiments, but rather than doing this on 10 individuals, we did it on 1,000 individuals, and and we took these 1,000 volunteers and gave them an identical food or followed what they were eating in in real life and measured their blood sugar levels afterwards. And then came the really big and shocking surprise. And the surprise was that the average response of these 1000 people to any test food or real life food that we've given them was exactly the glycemic index of that food. So the the system by itself was accurate and correct. Hmm. However, when we looked at the individualized responses of these 1,000 people to the same identical food that they consumed, we saw a huge, huge variability. Some people spiked to diabetic levels, some people didn't spike at all, which by itself told us that this inherent background paradigm which we all intuitively follow of a one size fits all paradigm, you know, a one-size-fits-all system that we all are chasing for 50 years now that would cure the disease is inherently impossible or, or inherently wrong. Because if your response to a given food is opposite than mine, then the same diet would not be good for both of us. And, and this gave rise to a very ambitious project, which we termed the personalized nutrition project, in which we try to use big data from uh, individuals in order to come up with a system that would not measure the food, as, as is the case in, with the glycemic index, but actually would measure the individual and would predict based on the individual measurements what that individual's response would be to any food on earth
1: it's so amazing there's so little research that validates that work that we in functional nutrition do which really does uh, honor bioindividuality and recognize that there isn't one size fits all and that we have to be in this process of assessing making recommendations tracking and bringing that tracking back to our assessment so that it's a continual and evolving process. So what were the major factors that you found to be determinants of those differentiators? And not to let the cat out of the bag, I know one is your passion, the microbiome. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And anything else that you found were kind of physiological or biochemical determinants of that difference?
0: Absolutely. And, and to be honest, when we started this project, we, we didn't know, and we didn't want to commit uh, uh, to known factors uh, and, and just measure these. We wanted to measure as many factors from each individual as we possibly could, put them all into what we call a machine learning pipeline or algorithm. It's a very advanced computational pipeline, and let the supercomputer decide by itself which would be the features that are more, most importantly uh, uh, leading to a good prediction of dietary responsive responses in in that individual. So from each of these first 1,000 individuals, we collected everything. We didn't just collect the microbiome, but we collected a whole lot of clinical features, people filled out many different questionnaires related to their life habits to their um, background medical illnesses to their dietary habit and and we took many blood tests uh, of course we took stool for, for microbiome assessment we connected them into smartphone app that we developed for this project that enabled us to really follow them with all of their activities throughout a week of follow up so a lot of data was collected from each of these individuals and then all of this data was put into um, ai or machine learning uh, pipelines that were happily for us, able to much better predict each person's individual's response to any given food as compared to the gold standard quite bad. But once we finished this really laborious process, we were able to revisit the algorithms and see what the algorithm chose as their more important features and, and narrow down these features. So I can tell you that today, when this system was applied on more than 100,000 people, we are able to reach the same very high degree of predictability by just um, taking from people a very limited set of uh, common clinical features that they can get on their own or or ask their family physician, plus collect stool for their microbiome assessment. And together, uh, these features are sufficient to induce a very comparable level of prediction as was achieved in the first stage of the study. In other words, many of the features that we have originally collected are redundant with each other, and now that the database is so huge and our knowledge is so much better than at the beginning, we are able to really narrow down you know, the hassle that we uh, subject people right. to when we their data to just the microbiome and a few questionnaires uh, that they fill out uh, online.
1: And what are some of those major specifics like which blood markers are they inflammatory markers where was it in the microbiome that you were seeing the most determinants of those responses
0: yes so, so actually the, the microbiome provides a whole a lot of of these features uh, individualized features that, that are useful for the pipeline that we've created to, to generate a good a good uh, prediction and and there's not one dominant set of features or one dominant feature that i can point to these are hundreds and thousands of different uh, microbiome characteristics Got it. Um, which we, we really have no idea why these are important more than others, and this would take us decades to to study and we mm-hmm. do. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that by using machine learning we were able to bypass, you know, twenty or thirty years of of old-fashioned research in order to reach a system, that uh, enables uh, a clinical uh, prediction um, that that is very useful for people.
1: So interesting. Were you finding things related to more of the antecedents, like geographical or ancestral determinants that became part of the algorithm?
0: First of all, I say that, of course, biogeography is is a critical critical parameter um, that is super important in anything that we do with respect to the human microbiome. So uh, uh, when you look at different geographical localizations, the microbiome of people living in these would be different based on um, ethnicity, based on diets, based on life habits. So of course, this is a very major parameter that we had to address as part of the development of this system. Uh, the first 1,000-person uh, study was performed mainly in Israel, which is a good place to do these studies because it's an ethnically diverse population with a relatively uniform uh, dietary kind of uh, habit. Right. Um, uh, but once we've reached a good predictability, it was our duty to try to replicate the same system in other geographical localizations. So, for example, uh, we've completed a collaborative study with the Mayo Clinic, which uh, basically copy-pasted the same system that we've developed in Israel, but applied it to people across central USA regions. And and, uh, happily for us, with very small tweaks, are the result of different diets that that this particular population practices, uh, we were able to to reach very, I would say, very similar degrees of of responses and predictability of of dietary responses. Lately, there have been other studies uh, unrelated to us uh, developing the same exact methodology that we've developed, uh, one, for example, uh, in, the, in in Stanford University, which reached very similar results to us. And we are engaged in other studies, uh, looking at other populations, such as children in Europe, and then uh, people in, in, in the Far East, in order to make sure that the algorithm or or this method that we've developed could be applied to ethnically diverse or geographically diverse populations.
1: That's fantastic. When we think about it through a clinical lens, and I know there's the machine learning and the algorithm that many of us at this point may not have access to, what are your recommendations for how we take the findings into the clinic, so to speak?
0: Right, that's a great question. And, and as a clinician, I'm aware that you know not everyone um, would be able to, to use this this algorithm. Uh, of course, once we finished uh, um, developing uh, or or publishing and developing these discoveries, uh, the Weizmann Institute, which which I'm part of, uh, uh, outsourced the. the technology to, to a commercial entity that basically is further simplifying and developing this, th- these uh, discoveries uh, into an upscalable uh, system that hopefully would be w- would be able to, to be used by, by many people worldwide. But you know still uh, uh, from a medical and scientific standpoint, Um, there are very simple things that people could do even without using these fancy uh, methods and algorithms. Uh, uh, And and for example, and this is something that we've actually elaborated uh, on in in a book that we've written on our studies called the personalized diet. We 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 suggest that uh, people who want to get a good idea on whether their daily or weekly uh, diet is actually good for them could very simply buy a glucose sensor. Uh, of the type you know you can buy in your local pharmacy Exactly. And, and and basically you can mix and match your diet even at home without you know paying anything you you can um, um, take your, your weekly or your regular diet. People usually surprisingly use 50 or 60 ingredients in their regular diet throughout. So our diversity is much less than, than maybe I, I would believe before we started uh, collecting the data. And and now you can take, uh, for example, some of your favorite dietary compounds and eat them and then measure your glycemic response using this really uh, readily available glucocheck or glucometer uh, that you can buy in your pharmacy. And, and, and now you can see See whether what you think is good for you is actually good for you. If you spike on this particular food, then you can try um, and, and, and change the combinations uh, in which you consume this food. And surprisingly, you know, in some people you can eat a, a piece of white bread and, and and in a given person this uh, would uh, result in, in a spike in their blood sugar level, which is not something we want to have as part of our healthy diet right. uh, practice. But then you can add on top of this piece of white bread one of different additives, uh, whatever, even butter, and the response would completely change. Uh, and we don't even know why this change would occur in a given person. But if you find the right combination by just mixing and matching and testing yourself, you can dramatically increase uh, your healthy nutrition without having to revert to to, to our uh you know, a fancy methodology that requires a payment and requires right. um, an app on and so forth. The advantage of the more fancy algorithm-based uh, method is that you don't need to test yourself because the database is so huge by now that we can tell you what responses would be even without testing anything and even without you being exposed to foods that, that you're interested to know about. Uh, you know, it, it provides a, a really uh, the, the ballpark of your nutritional responses even to foods that you've never even tried. But if you really want to change in, in a quick and, and efficient way uh, your your life habits, uh, you can just buy at your local supermarket or your local pharmacy this uh, glucometer and do it yourself.
1: Yeah, brilliant. That's so validating. That's what we do in the clinic. We definitely are monitoring that as a baseline, actually, for all hormone health, the blood sugar cascading out. Two last quick questions. One is when you're measuring, are you measuring a certain time postprandial, and do you vary that measurement? I know we play around with first doing about two hours, and then we do it closer so we can kind of monitor the spike in the response that, you know, sort of subjective cellular level. What's your take on that?
0: Well, it really depends on on which method you use. So so just to clarify, um, in our method, by now, we do not even need to measure the people.
1: Right. You can do it by the determinants.
0: Yes, And we, we do it computationally and we can very accurately put you in a situation in which you know what your responses are to any given food without ever being uh, measured or, or skin-pricked uh, uh, to measure your blood sugar levels. However, if you're referring to the do-it-yourself, the home uh, method that, that I, I mentioned before, you know, the holier than the, 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 the pope method would, would necessitate that you test yourself for two hours after you eat a given food. But I think that if you choose a constant time, such as one hour or two hours after you eat this food and you use that for all the foods that you test on yourself, you would still get a very reliable measure uh, that would tell you whether a given food is good or bad or could be improved in, in your own case.
1: Yeah, great, I love that. And one other question I have for you is about other factors that you saw or you've found in the algorithm impact those blood sugar responses, whether that be stress or lack of sleep or exercise one way or the other. Did that impact the responses you were seeing in the test subjects?
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and and, and any one of these factors that you've mentioned have uh, have impacted people's individualized responses. Uh, for example, the people's uh, circadian rhythm and even people's timing of meals was was a critical determinant, which which seemed to uh, impact their glycemic response after meals, and and we've extensively published. On this single factor by showing for the first time that even the microbes, the the microbiome, the microbes in our gut are uniquely circadian in their composition and their behavior. And this is totally controlled by our dietary timing. Um, And if you screw up uh, this circadian habit of of eating, you know, in the right times and, and controlling your gut microbes at that time, then very um, unwanted things could happen, such as a tendency to develop diabetes and obesity and and many others. So so for sure, wake-sleep cycles are very much important uh, for many different reasons in determining our metabolic health. Uh, Immunity um, is also a very big factor. We're engaged in in studies now in humans in which we try to harness all of this new knowledge and and new insight um, into controlling immune-mediated gut disease, such as Crohn's disease. So the more we probe, the more we see that these fascinating life habit-related factors are not only important, but they could be harnessed through our increased understanding of the gut microbiome towards new interventions in uh, such diseases.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for the work you are doing to illuminate this personalization that we need in understanding dietary factors. I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to speak with you.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: The 15 Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15 Minute Matrix team features music by Gilbert Nakayama with production support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook with mixing and editing by Rowan Bradley. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode by email, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.